photographs and memories All the love you gave to me Somehow it just can't be true It's all I've left of you Experts suggest that as many as 5 million Americans aged 65 and older have Alzheimer's disease. Unless the disease can effectively be treated or prevented, the number of people with it will increase significantly if current population trends continue. Today on CTSI Discovery Radio, we'll talk about aging and Alzheimer's. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. You're listening to CTSI Discovery Radio, and I'm David Todd, your host for the next half an hour. On this program, we'll be talking about new advances in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, even years before symptoms can start showing. Plus, the more we know about the disease, the better chance we have at finding a new intervention or cure. Just ahead, we'll get the latest from the National Institutes on Aging's new Deputy Director of the Division of Neurosciences, and from world-renowned Alzheimer's researcher, Dr. Piero Antuano. But first, a little about how CTSI, or the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, works for you here in Wisconsin. CTSI is an eight-member consortium made up of the Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, UW-Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, plus Children's Hospital, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the VA Medical Center, collaborating together to focus each institution's area of research expertise on the same healthcare issue, all with the promise of finding new drugs, cures, and health interventions faster, better, and more cost-effectively for anyone who needs them. For even more perspective, I was able to sit down with the president of the Medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. John Raymond, to talk about how he values building partnerships and collaborations throughout the area. Good afternoon, Dr. Raymond. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, David. I'm pleased to be with you. I'd like to ask you, since you've came to MCW, you've been hard at work building partnerships and collaborations statewide and, in fact, worldwide. Um, how is, does uh, having a Clinical and Translational Science Award from the National Centers for Advancing Translational Science help you build that network? I think, first of all, and probably most importantly, the imprimatur of the CTSA program is incredibly important for us to be able to attract talented individuals from the business community and from other academic and healthcare institutions to want to partner with us. So it's been very enabling in that regard. Second of all, I think this provides a common ground in research and education that resonates very well throughout the entire region. Our faculty, the business community, and healthcare workers all want to work together to do something that leads to common good for the whole region. So the CTSA allows us to do those things. I would also say that um, this provides an opportunity for the Medical College of Wisconsin as a freestanding medical school to tap into a broad talent pool across the region. We need help with quantitative sciences and engineering. We'd like to connect with the business community and business schools, schools of law. We'd like to work with economists, and we also want to work with the humanities discipline. This gives us a great framework and a platform to provide those opportunities for collaboration. We have common themes of entrepreneurship, focused on collaboration. This allows us to translate ideas into products, new therapies, cures, jobs, and spin-out companies, all of which energize the entire community to want to work together. Uh, it seems that uh, for MCW, collaboration really has made the college much more nimble and much more um, ready for the next generation of scientists and doctors. 
I agree. And again, we'll get back to what did the CTSA do for us. This allowed a platform to really bring people together in partnership to focus on a collaborative theme, to share resources, to create a virtual university, so to speak, that brings together the talent base throughout the entire region and breaks down the barriers between the institutions. Thank you, Dr. Raymond, for your time. Thank you, David. It was my pleasure. At the National Institute on Aging, they've been working diligently during this Alzheimer's Awareness Month to make sure that the latest information about the disease is in the hands of people who need it the most, the community and healthcare providers. Dr. Creighton Phelps was recently appointed as new Deputy Director of NIA's Division of Neuroscience, and he joins us today on the phone. Good afternoon, Dr. Phelps. How are you today? I'm doing well. I hope you are too. I am. What do we know now that we didn't even know five years ago about Alzheimer's disease? Uh, what we know now is built on what we knew five years ago, but there's been a lot of subtle changes and uh, no major changes except in the way we actually visualize the disease. Well, tell me about and, that. Uh, it, it's um, we a couple of years ago the Alzheimer's Association and the National Institute on Aging put together some panels and we looked at redefining what Alzheimer's disease really is based upon knowledge that has accumulated since 1984 when the original diagnostic guidelines for Alzheimer's were first published. They hadn't been really changed since then. And what we've recognized in more recent years is that there are stages of the disease, some of them with no symptoms at all. Wow in pre, what we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Then there is a milder stage where it's really not dementia yet. We call that mild cognitive impairment. And then the full-blown dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease. So just redefining that has been a major step forward in how we approach uh, various aspects of Alzheimer's research. And then we follow that up by looking once again at the neuropathological diagnostic guidelines uh, where it used to be thought that the gold standard was neuropathology so that you really couldn't say someone had Alzheimer's disease until they died and their brains were examined and we looked for what the hallmarks of plaques and tangles. Mm -hmm. However, we have discovered in the meanwhile that many normal aging people who die and get an autopsy have those plaques and tangles, yet they were normal during life, as far as we can tell. So there was something that was, there was a, a disconnect there between the pathological diagnosis and the clinical symptoms. Can you tell me um, how, with the new brain imaging that we're able to do, how early are we able to detect signs of Alzheimer's in the brain? Uh, quite early. Um, we uh, now, can, using the amyloid imaging techniques, see uh, in those patients uh, uh, that have the plaques and tangles, uh, we can see maybe even 20 years or 30, possibly 30 years before the actual symptoms start to appear that they are accumulating amyloid in the brain. However, that does not mean that they're necessarily going to have Alzheimer's disease clinically. Mm. As I said, many people die with the amyloid in their brains and they were clinically normal. So they that, never that's, showed symptoms or anything. Right. So it, it, it's a, it's a, that's why I said I started, it's, it's complex, <laughs> because we thought we had some of these answers, and now we have to rethink them all. So really, a lot of the um, questions just led to more questions? Yes, I, and that's the way good science goes. You, know, you, you have to stop, reconfigure what you're doing to, to meet what the data is telling you. So 
what you know, and that's what we've been doing with the clinical trials in Alzheimer's. It's what we've been doing with diagnostic procedures. Uh, the biomarkers, like the imaging biomarkers, did not exist uh, until recent years, last ten years or so. And so, in those original guidelines, uh, w there was no mention of, of biomarkers. Now we, we're looking at. We have some biomarkers, both imaging and some, uh, not, nothing from any blood tests yet, but we do have these cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers that are telling us a little bit. Not, they're not diagnostic, but they're telling us a little bit about the disease and when it begins. And, Doctor, as we are able to um, uh, image the brain earlier and see the signs of Alzheimer's disease earlier, um, is that leading to any um, new interventions that could happen earlier? Yes. Uh, in fact, we're using that to select patients for clinical trials and looking for interventions that might approach the disease at a stage where it might be easier to stop or to at least slow it down a bit. What we've done in the past is look for people with full Alzheimer's disease, both clinically and probably pathologically, which means that they have dementia already or in the early stages of dementia. It may be too late uh, at that point to stop the disease. So what we are looking at now are, are ways to find the people before they reach that point and intervene maybe with even some of the same drugs that have not worked in those later stages. They might work in an earlier stage because the brain is still changing, and if we stop it then, it may not continue on to the dementia phase. Dr. Phelps, thank you so much for that information. You're very welcome. I'm glad to do it. CTSI is on the cutting edge of scientific discovery surrounding Alzheimer's and dementia research. Right here in Wisconsin is one of the leading scientists on aging, dementia, and Alzheimer's. His name? Dr. Piero Antuano. We caught up with Dr. Antuano at his offices at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Antuano, thank you for your time today. Can you tell me... When did you start your um, research in um, aging, dementia, and Alzheimer's? Yes, this will definitely date me because I started working in Alzheimer's disease when there was no Alzheimer's disease really uh, in the mid-70s when it was primarily an academic research interest which did not have much clinical applications. Um, we were interested in studying the chemistry of memory because there was some emerging information at the clinical level that probably we had some targets that could be pharmacologically manipulated and maybe offer the future for pharmacology of memory. And so that what caught my interest at a time when it was very difficult to find people who had memory problems because we thought that the more common memory loss we see in the elderly, we, we conceived that as probably just an age-related change, not what we know today is Alzheimer's disease. Would you say that pretty much your entire career has been dedicated to the study of aging and uh, dementia and Alzheimer's? I would say yes, because in those early days I was working in Italy with my mentor at uh, the University of Florence, and um, as the field grew uh, larger and it was apparent that more expertise is needed to be added to the field of Alzheimer's disease, then I moved to the United States and I was able to maintain this kind of focus of uh, work throughout my entire life. So I could actually write some books on history of uh, the research in Alzheimer's disease as well. Um. And I know that if we went through your um, listing of awards and publications, uh, we'd probably be out of time for this interview. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll make sure that those are up on the website for people to see as well. Uh, but tell me, 
What has made you so passionate about this, um, this disease or this study? Is it something about the population or something about the study of the brain that really has captured your interest for, you know, several decades? Yes, that's of course is a question you don't ask yourself as you're doing the work. It's always a retrospective type of uh, uh, consideration you eventually have. And I would say that uh, as a neurologist, uh, clinically trained, I always thought that the mind or where the mind meets the brain is always the most intriguing part of the work we do. I mean, the reason we are different from each other is not because of our physical characteristics, but it's really our, our life stories, experiences, sad stories, happy stories. It's our memories who really define us, who we are. And I thought that was uh, an important and intriguing part of the brain to study compared to other more physical, let's say, parts of the brain. Besides that, I think also dealing with the elderly gives you a certain sense of uh, um, you, you, you understand why you're doing this basic research is to help a group of people who are very altruistic. Uh, they've seen their life go by and they feel now it's my time to contribute. And so it's a group of people with, which I enjoy very much working with because of their vision on life and experiences. With the studies you currently have going on, uh, what excites you most about the possible outcomes? What we know about Alzheimer's disease is that there's not a specific single cause that might trigger the disease. There are many ways of getting this uh, condition, unfortunately. Some of it can be clearly genetic, and there's growing evidence that there could be some environmental influence as well. If we look, for instance, at identical twins, concordance in getting Alzheimer's disease is around 70%. So there's got to be something above and beyond the genes, a lifestyle that might influence the development of the disease. This is very important because if we could uh, act on uh, these uh, uh, environmental factors, lifestyle factors, like we've been successful in doing in cardiovascular disease, we would have a way of reducing the incidence, the presence of disease without having a cure. And that's probably the short-term way to address the uh, problem of this disease while colleagues by far better involved in pharmacology are developing the magic bullet to treat this disease. But as of now, I think we need to focus on identifying further risk factors and modifying them. You mentioned the possibility of early diagnosis, and there are new ways with imaging today to find in normal healthy people some signatures that could tell us this specific person might be at higher risk. These are the people that we need to identify because if we have a hope to make a change in disease, we have to do it not when there is a memory problem, but maybe 10 years before. It's like uh, cancer. When you see the, the advanced stages and the metastases, it's very hard to intervene pharmacologically. You need to work in the prevention. So we've got uh, better imaging now with the brain. Uh, we've got better understanding of Alzheimer's disease itself. And now we're really kind of just looking for that one um, extra link that's uh, environmental um, that's going to help us push us towards the right intervention. That is correct. And uh, for the listeners who might want to wonder what are these interventions or what are these factors, uh, to keep it simple, one would have to think about the potential risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Uh, diet, lack of exercise, um, nutrition, these are variables that we were able to identify in the 50s, 60s that have made a significant change. We have less people today with strokes, less people today with heart attacks. We are on the verge now on it of identifying these potential risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, which are similar to cardiovascular risk factors, and intervene so as to probably reduce the 
frequency of this disease. If we could delay the onset of the disease by just five years, half of the cases of Alzheimer's disease would not exist. That's fascinating information, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. To read more about Dr. Antoano's work, please check out ctsi.mcw.edu, keyword Alzheimer's. Next, we'll talk with the U.S. Senator raised by a scientist and hear their views on government-supported research in just a moment. How can I campaigned on issues of retirement security and high-quality health care for the elderly, just to name a few. Now, she is the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin and an advocate for older adults across the U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. Senator Baldwin, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us today. It's a delight. Thank you for having me. We rarely get to have somebody in the studio for an interview, so it's a real treat for us. It's a treat for me. It's much easier than on the phone when you can actually look people in the eyes. Exactly. <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you about um, uh, the work that you do in the um, U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging. Yes. Um, I know that um, you have fought for retirement security for our parents and grandparents, and you sit on the U.S. Senate um, Special Committee for Aging. Why is this topic so important to you specifically? Well, for a number of reasons. The first is deeply personal. Uh, I was raised by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, and I first of all feel so lucky that they were there for me when I needed them. My grandmother was 56 when I was born. So I can tell you that it was during my youth when I started figuring out a little bit about issues like Medicare and Social Security because I was really young when my grandparents uh, reached their retirement years. and. Um, so it, it had a special meaning to me. Uh, as I grew older um, and my uh, grandparents uh, advanced in age, um, at some point there was a little of a role reversal. And while they were there for me, it was absolutely my honor to be a primary caregiver for my grandmother when she reached her 90s and um, needed, uh, needed a little bit of assistance. So um, that's the deeply personal reason why issues of um, retirement security, of uh, high-quality health care focused on the needs of um, older uh, Americans is important to me. But there's another one, uh, perhaps let's call it a political reason, and that is that my predecessor in the United States Senate, Herb Cole, was chair of the special uh, aging uh, committee in the Senate for many years prior to my um, election succeeding him into office. And when I had the opportunity to sit on the same committee that he had used so skillfully to shine a spotlight on issues of incredible importance to seniors, uh, whether it's to advance policy or advocate for better funding or just educate the American public, he uh, wielded the gavel in that committee in a way um, that I really admired, and I'm just so grateful to be able to follow in his footsteps on the Special Committee on Aging in the Senate. And speaking of that committee, what kind of legislation do you work on in the committee? What, um, and I'll even ask you a more personal question, what kind of legislation do you like to get behind 
um, and see uh, push through that committee? Well, this committee is um, called the Special Committee on Aging because it is kind of special. And what do I mean by that? It, it's a committee that does a lot of investigations um, that digs really sort of more deeply into policies than uh, some other committees do. And uh, then uh, upon um, the deeper inquiry, it can really instigate change elsewhere in Congress. So, for example, um, we know that in times uh, 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 people have tried to take advantage of seniors through financial fraud. Uh, shining a spotlight on that issue some years ago allowed us to advance legislation through the Congress. Issues related to long-term care, issues related to elder abuse, all of these are uh, types of issues that the Special Committee on Aging has uh, shown a spotlight on and enabled uh, significant policy advancements or um, sort of reprioritizing of funding so that we can do the right thing to respond to important issues of our day. Recently, the committee has has talked about the importance of educating people and families in particular to talk about end-of-life issues. Mm -hmm. Those are issues are things that were... Uh, very taboo, right. Very uh, historically, and uh, we had some terrific witnesses uh, before the committee just talking about how um, conversations like that, especially when... Uh, these issues are far off can be so helpful. Let's you know. Let's talk about what one another might want in a certain circumstance, and then. Um, then it's important to almost have that conversation in your middle age, so that you can prepare for those times. Absolutely, and and knowing that people's opinions and ideas might change, but to keep in touch about those things. But what is so frustrating? What we heard so much testimony about is how how often um, the health care and interventions people receive um, towards the end of life are counter, absolutely counter to what they desire. But if they haven't told anybody, how do you know? How do you know? And so these conversations are so important, and the committee is really signing a spotlight on that. What can we do to instigate those conversations, um, and then have uh, people uh, either write out wishes or or make sure their health care providers know? Um, Senator, can you also talk to me about um, government-supported research? Um, Obviously, the National Institutes of Health support um, research for uh, a number of healthcare and public healthcare issues. Um, how important is it that we secure or that we maintain a level of funding from the government um, to address these greater um, public health issues? Well, I, I want to start answering your question also with a personal story. Okay. I, I told you I was raised by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Um, my grandfather uh, was an NIH-funded scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. Well, this is very convenient. Yeah, so, um, so I learned at a very early age, you know, whether it's uh, occasionally going to his workplace and seeing, you know, uh, the laboratory and all the beakers and all the things you consider uh, when you think about a classic <laughs> laboratory scientist. And, scientist. Yeah. Um, I he was doing very basic science, um, uh, studying how energy uh, uh, is used by cells. 
Uh, I know one of the things we're talking about today is um, clinical and translational uh, science and uh, the investment we make there. And you need it all. You need to know how life works at the, the cellular level, and you need to know what to do at the patient's bedside. Uh, all is really, really important to our advances. But um, I, I learned at a very young age that uh, the United States is really exceptional in having the National Institutes for Health, uh, investing in innovation and science and basic research and applied research in the way that we have as a nation. It has produced incredible medical and treatment and, and, and cures, um, medical results. It has um, also been an economic engine as we've discovered things that, um, you know, that uh, create uh, opportunities for entrepreneurship and commercialization. Uh, so it has all these incredible benefits, but the most important perhaps is the um, alleviating of suffering, of addressing um, some of the most uh, you know, horrendous uh, human conditions and doing so in a positive way. Um, we have a lot more to do. And as to the policy in, in Congress, uh, perhaps because of my background, I believe that we have to adequately fund the National Institutes for Health and other innovation funding organizations like the National Science Foundation. Um, and we have I think at every point when funding has been pared back, seen um, the negative consequences of that. Whether today, uh, as we try to fight back against Ebola and realize that scientists who are looking at vaccines and, and cures hadn't been funded, their proposals are on the shelf somewhere because there wasn't enough money, um, whether it's uh, issues associated with aging, dementia, uh, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, we want to make breakthroughs. And that requires adequate funding, uh, and that's something that I strongly, strongly support. Senator Baldwin, that's why we enjoy having you and are so happy to have you as the senator for Wisconsin. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. It's a delight. In just a minute, we'll introduce you to one of Milwaukee's newest weathermen. Just in time for winter. Translational trivia with Tom Walks is next. And joining us on the phone today is Tom Walks, meteorologist at Fox 6. Welcome, Tom. Hey, David. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I've been working around the country uh, for the last several years. I actually went to Homestead High School and interned with Vince Candela years ago, and we've kept in touch all these years, and it's great to be back home near family, and, and Fox 6 is the best place to work. Well, welcome back. I'm glad you could join us for Translational Trivia here on CTSI Discovery Radio. Um, your uh, wife's grandfather had all Alzheimer's disease, correct? Correct. Yeah, we went through that several years ago. And it was, um, you know, as, as many folks know who have uh, relatives who um, suffer from the disease, obviously it's, it's a very painful uh, disease and, and it's, it's a very difficult disease. All right, then hopefully you'll know some of these trivia questions, so I'm going to launch right into it. And today okay. you're playing on behalf of one of our Facebook friends, who is Terry uh, Chapman Trovich. Excellent. All right, Terry, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to do it for you, Terry. Okay, you have um, three questions. You have to get two of the three correct uh, to win. 
And she, uh, you'll be playing for a CTSI prize pack, including a notebook, a coaster, a CTSI pen, and a flash drive. Let's launch right into the first question. This is a multiple choice. All right. Okay. Uh, the first question is, which of these famous Americans had Alzheimer's disease? A. Ronald Reagan. B. Rita Hayworth. C. Rosa Parks. Or D. All of the above. Ooh. Oh, boy. I'm sure you probably know one of them. I certainly know one of them. It's the D that's throwing me off. Um, boy. I'm going to go with A. Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan, in fact, did have Alzheimer's disease, but you were corrected the first time. D, it's all of them. Oh, it was D, all of the yep. above. Good because, question. Yeah, because no one's immune to this disease. Right. Right. Okay, your second question is a science or fiction question. So your answer should be science or fiction. All right? Okay. Okay, here's your question. Science or fiction. Years ago, scientists believed aluminum, found in soda cans or cooking pans, caused Alzheimer's disease. Science or fiction? I'm going to go with science on that one. You're correct. Um, science, because uh, they were actually wrong. They could not find any connection between aluminum and Alzheimer's disease. Interesting. Uh-huh. And this one is a fill-in-the-blank. And this one, I'm, I'm hoping you're just going to guess it, and we're going to win for Terry. All right. All right. Your last question is, which month is Alzheimer's Awareness Month? I'm going to say November. Correct. All right, Terry, we did it. You did it. That's it, Tom. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you um, uh, including me in this. And, you know, I'm certainly a big supporter of Alzheimer's research and a big believer that uh, you know, a cure can be found. And thank you, Tom. And it takes, you know, conversations like this and people like you to be public about their experiences with Alzheimer's and to keep backing that research. So I appreciate you um, telling your story. Okay, sounds good. I will remember you. One last item, CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make sure to mark your calendar and join us next month, where we'll be talking about participating in research and how it's done if you want to help make new discoveries. Until then, CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everts, Doctors Herman Beats, Carlos De La Pena, and Reza Shakir. Oh,